Peter Schwitzer? Oh, yeah, it's the guy I listened to when I made my first billion. He's one clever son of a... Five, four... We're online. The hottest internet station. It's time for The Switzer Show with the guy who makes getting richer easier than running up a credit card bill, Peter Switzer. Hello and welcome to The Switzer Show. I'm Peter Switzer and uh, thanks for joining us. I'm joined by my colleague, Paul Rickard. Hi, Paul. Hi, Peter. We're into the uh, election campaign already. Uh, How many people have asked you, can the coalition win? I get a question all the time. I get the question over coffee, but it's usually they've got no chance and I sit there saying, well, maybe there's a bit of an outside chance. But uh, latest news poll today, 5248. I think that's poll number 51. Or something they've yeah. been behind in. Uh, so uh, and, and it seems you have to be, to be a true believer, really, don't you? That's right. It seems to Maybe. be that being the, the preferred prime minister means absolutely naught because Morrison is uh, a mile ahead of Bill Shorten in that preferred prime minister, but this doesn't translate to what party's going to get up. Well, it's so important, as you're right, Peter, I mean, it's so important for investors because, I mean, the Labor Party in some ways has been quite courageous about announcing all these yeah. changes. I mean, yeah. at least we know what they're going to do, but... For investors, I mean, uh, particularly uh, self-funded retirees and, and property investors and anyone who uh, likes to make capital on an asset, you know, the, the changes are pretty substantive. Yeah. And uh, I'm not sure we've ever quite seen, you know, so much so early yeah. and before the election that people know what a party's going to do. And, I, and it's not good for... Well, an, Many investors' point of views, yeah. investors' points of view. I should well, say. let's hope we get some certainty. We were talking to Malcolm McCarris, who I describe as the doyen of electoral analysis, analysis, and um, he's coming on the program. And after that, we'll be joined by David Kirk, former All Black, uh, uh, former CEO of Fairfax mm-hmm. Media. He's going to be talking about funding for you know, uh, high high tech companies and. Uh, it's going to be interesting to see what he thinks about because, you know, we know that there's a lot of companies out there really, you know, you know on the cutting edge. We've seen some great companies like uh, Afterpay and um, uh, Altium and all these sort of companies coming out of nowhere and doing very well. But I wonder whether the funding's any good for these sort of companies. Well, that'll be good to find out. I, mean, I think he chairs a, a listed investment company called Balador, um, which is listed on the ASX. But you're right, Peter, there has been a growth there. We've seen a lot of uh, talk about fintech, probably... <coughs> With the exception of Afterpay, not really a lot of success yet on behalf of the fintechs, but no. lots of hype. And uh, I guess the question that many investors will have is, you know, is that something they can get involved in or, mm. or should they get involved with? And if so, how? <coughs> Maybe David's got some ideas about uh, just what the role of, of providing funding is to you mm. know, technology companies and, and people innovating in that space. Yes, yeah, without doubt. So without further ado, let's go to Malcolm McCarris and we'll find out whether he thinks that the Coalition has a ghost of a hope of winning in the May 18 federal election. Welcome to the program, Malcolm. Good afternoon, Peter. All right, so, um, of course, as I've pointed out, I've got Paul Rickard with me as well, and we're both really interested because we're getting this question from all of our uh, our listeners, all of our subscribers, all of our clients. Can the Liberals win this election? Yes, I'd say they have about one chance in three to win. Okay. 
So when There's was about the two chances in three for Labor, one in chance in three for the Coalition. OK, so when was the last time a, a party had a one in three chances of winning and they actually won? I'd say 2001. Right. The 2001 election, the Howard government had one chance in three to win and did win. And that was the GST election? Um, no, that was the one following the GST election. Okay. Right. That was the Tampa election. Okay, yes. And, and so just maybe, Malcolm, you could take us through your rationale for why you say they've got a one in three chance? Look, it's pure guesswork. Um, all I know is all manner of people, which has generally included me, as have been saying that people have stopped listening to the coalition. But I'm just not so sure that that is true. Uh, I don't know. The truth is, I don't know. Mm. All I know is, um, to me, this situation is very different from what it was in the New South Wales election. In the New South Wales election, the polls seemed to suggest that Labor was going to win, or at least be a minority parliament, and the betting odds said the same thing. Yet I instinctively knew all along that the coalition would win the election because I expected the polls to pick up and I just, my instinct just told me the coalition would win the election, which it did and which I predicted. Mm. But this time, I don't know quite that I'm willing to trust my instincts. So I'm just not sure I do trust my instinct because the position is never has never arisen before of of a clear choice between two views of what Australia should do. And it, it's a more clear choice than I can ever remember. In fact, I can't ever remember anything like this election, really. So, th so, so, so therefore, because of that, the outcome could, could even surprise you? Well, no, nothing surprises me. Nothing surprises me. <laughs> um, for what it's worth, on the current polling which is a 52-48 Labor win in two-party preferred, which is what I'm guessing will happen. Were that to happen, the parties on the left would win 83 seats and the parties on the right would win 68. Now, I better define left and right. Parties on the left are the Labor Party, 81 seats, plus Adam Band of the Greens, plus Andrew Wilkie, that makes 83. Part of the right are all Liberals, all Nationals, and all Independents who sit in seats that are natural for Liberal or National. Now, that's a majority of 15. That would be quite a workable majority. That would be quite a nice win for Labor. Uh, it would be an absolute majority of 11 and a de facto left majority of 15. And that's what I'm inclined to guess will happen, and that would be what you'd get with a 52-48 division of the two-party third vote. Yeah. But... The point is that people haven't really thought hard about exactly, well, it's all a question of what is the zeitgeist, is, is the way they put it. Is the zeitgeist so favourable to Labor that you can expect the 52-48 result, which is what the polls are now showing, or isn't there a serious possibility that the polls might change enough? So the thing that might make the government win 
is simply the good side of the economy. And um, for that reason, I'm rather less willing to make a dogmatic prediction than I normally am for these elections. Mm. Uh, all I'm willing to say is I think it's a reasonable guess to say two chances in three for Labor, one chance in three for the coalition. But it's easy to imagine the coalition winning. I mean... Mm. It's very easy for, to imagine the coalition picking up the seats held by independents. For example, I think the Liberal candidate, Dave Sharma, will win back Wentworth. In fact, I'm pretty sure of it, to be honest with you. Now, I think that the seat of uh, the seat in Victoria, Indi, currently held by Cathy McGowan, I think that will go to either the Liberal Party or the National Party. I'm not quite sure which. Now, likewise, it's quite easy to imagine a seat like Herbert going to the Liberals and it's quite easy to imagine a seat like McNamara in Melbourne going to the Liberals and it's also quite easy to imagine and this is what happened in 2001 and 2004 it's quite easy to imagine when when you get a movement which you could possibly get late in this campaign then all sorts of seats fall because the truth of the matter is the pendulum works. The pendulum does work. It does. It really, you can, once you can guess the two-party preferred vote, you can guess the result in seats. Can you take because us, of the principle of standard devi- um, cancellation of deviations. Can you take us through the electoral pendulum, in particular the discussion that uh, a lot of the analysts have been talking about, that the result really depends on what happens in Victoria and Queensland. Firstly, do you agree with that statement? And if so, could you just go through those, uh, why those two states are so important? Well, I don't know that I do agree with that statement, really. I think New South Wales will be pretty important. Tasmania could be important if the Liberals start to take any decent gains. All I'm willing to say is I think you'll get a lot of cancellation, what I call cancellation of deviation. I'll give an example. Mm-hmm. The seat of banks was a solid Labor seat for about 40 years. Then it was won by the Liberals in 2013, held by the Liberals in 2016, and I'm pretty sure banks will stay Liberal. That's on in, the other hand, that's in like metropolitan Reeves, Sydney, isn't it? It's in metropolitan Sydney. It's basically Reevesby, East Hills. It's basically the train line. When you take a train from Sydney to Canberra, you mm-hmm. basically go through banks. Mm-hmm. Well, you go through Barton in places like Kingsgrove and then, then you go to Banks and the rest of the line is all Banks. It's um, Nawee, Padstow, East Hills and all those places. Now, the Liberals did extremely well in the state election there. And all I can tell you is Liberal Party officials have told me when I've gone through these seats in terms of what would happen in terms of cancellation of deviations, they've always said banks will stay Liberal. On the other hand, a seat like Reid could very well go Labor. Reid needs 4.7% swing to fall, but banks needs one5 But in Reid, the sitting member is retiring. In banks, the sitting member is standing again. So I would say in the event of a 52-48 result favouring Labor, I think you'll find that Reid needing 47 would fall to Labor, banks needing 1.5 would stay with the Liberals. Malcolm, are there seats, like in the old days, the seat of Philip was, if you won Philip, you you 
one government. And Philip is now part of Wentworth and was a sort of bridge between Waverley and, and Coogee and whatever. And I think the seat around Penrith, is that is that what's... That's Lindsay. Lindsay. Now, Lindsay ha used to have that kind of status as well. Are there seats that are reliable indicators of what might happen at the overall election? Well, the answer is no. They always used to say that Eden Monero... Yeah. would be won by the party that won the election. But Labor won Ed Monero quite easily last time, and I think you'll find Labor will hold Ed Monero quite easily. I would say there is no single seat, no single seat at all. Mm. It's just a matter of going to the bottom of my pendulum, taking all the seats from Reed needing 4.7 down to Capricornia needing, 4 point, needing 0 0.6, and really, it just depends on the overall distribution of the vote. The reason why I give Labor two chances and three of winning simply is that I just have the feeling that the 52-48 division of the vote the polls are now showing will be the result of the election. But because this election is so unusual, and because for that reason I don't trust my instincts, in the case of the New South Wales election, I trusted my instincts completely. I just knew perfectly well that the 50-50 two-party bird vote wouldn't prevail because the Liberals would win quite easily. The Liberals did actually win more easily than people think. Mm. So, um, But in this one, I suppose if asked to predict, I say 83 seats for the left, 68 for the right, a majority of 15, that sounds like a landslide to many people. But the point is... Systems of single-member electoral districts do that. Huge numbers of seats can fall on relatively small swings. And that's why in my entire lifetime, in my entire lifetime, there has only ever been one hung parliament. Mm. Only one in the House of Representatives in my entire lifetime. Um, for that reason, predicting hung parliaments is a common thing for people to do, but they practically never happen. And usually when they are predicted, they don't happen. Malcolm, They only happen when they're not predicted. When, when you look, a British election is a good example. The last British election, the universal prediction that the Conservative Party would sweep the board, that's what produced the hung parliament. Mm. The previous one, the one before that, when the hung parliament was predicted, the result was an outright Conservative win. Now, I would say a hung parliament is extremely unlikely, but it's possible because I think there'll probably be five or six independents in the in the House of Representatives. But Malcolm, the truth is, I don't know. I, I can't yeah. do more than just offer you my guesses, really. Okay. Well, why doesn't the preferred prime minister number mean much? Because uh, Morrison has belted uh, Morrison, uh, sorry, to shorten all the way along the line. <clears throat> So why does that mean much when it comes to election day? Because there are so many other things that people might vote about. I mean, people might vote according to who their local member should be. I mean, the theory of our system actually is that you vote for the best candidate in your local seat, don't you? I mean, theoretically, that's what you do. Now, quite a lot of people actually do that. That's why I think, as I say, banks will stay liberal and Reid will go Labor. Because when a sitting member retires, a seat is much more likely to go to the other side than when a sitting member has established a good record, a strong local record. And um, there are all sorts of things that people can vote about. Policies, 
general ideas of government, the national mood, state of the economy and all these sort of things. And the preferred Prime Minister is only one thing. All I'm willing to say is, if the Liberals do win the election, then I would say the preferred Prime Minister, um, being so favourable to Robert, to um, Morrison and so unfavourable to Shorten, that would be the thing that gave the Liberals the win that they had if they win the election. Now, what, about, what about Benelong? That's a seat that once was um, you know, run, uh, you know, run uh, owned by a Prime Minister and now it sort of went to Labor and now John Alexander's got it. Is it vulnerable in this election? Not in the least. Funny? Not in the least. There's no way in the world Labor will win Benelong. Not in no, no way in the world. Okay. Now, I mean, the point is, uh, Christina Keneally did reasonably well in the by-election, but it was a pretty poor performance, really, for Labor. And I can't see any reason why Brian Aller would win a seat that Christina Keneally couldn't win. Mm. What so, about... No, I don't, give, I don't give Labor any chance in Benelong. What, what about the, uh, the Senate, Malcolm? Because obviously a lot of people are looking at... Uh, Labor's uh, several tax changes and the question marks about what will happen when they get to the Senate uh, should Labor win. So are you a bit more confident about uh, predictions for the Senate? Um, not really. Uh, look, I'm afraid when I talk about the Senate, I can't resist telling everybody what a terrible system it is. It's the most disgraceful, dishonest system I have ever seen foisted upon the Australian people in the 70 years I've been following these things. It's utterly dishonest because the ballot paper says to you, you may vote in one of two ways, either above the line one to at least six or below the line one to at least 12. That's what it says. Now, those words are designed to tell you that your vote's informal if you don't go one, two, three, four, five, six above the line or one to 12 below the line. That's, that's what they are designed to do. They are designed to deceive you. The simple fact is that a single one above the line is a formal vote. Now, we just don't know whether people will take any notice of these instructions this time. I mean, last time they did because there was all this Electoral Commission advertising. There was continual talk about the new system and all that sort of thing. Now, all that had the effect that 90% of formal votes were cast in accordance with the instructions on the ballot paper. Now, I'm not at all sure that that will happen this time. I mean, I think it's quite likely that people will cotton on to the dishonesty of the system and that more and more broadcasters in particular will follow the lead set by two Sydney broadcasters last time and advertise the fact that you only need to put a single one above the line. That's the fact. You only need to put a single one above the line that is what I advise people to do if they want a, vote, a formal vote, uh, or perhaps one and two. Now, well, I don't well, know how it'll work. I just don't know how this thing will work, because how this thing will work may very well determine how many of these minor people get in. All I can do is offer you my guesses. Okay. So I'll give you my guesses. Yeah, let's, let's yeah. go for your guesses, Malcolm, if we can. I'll give you my guesses. My guesses is Coalition 34... Labor 28, Greens 2, Pauline Hanson's One Nation Party 2, Central Alliance 1, Darren Hinch 1, Jackie Lambie 1. Now, 
That means Labor plus Greens plus Lambie would be 37, which is one less than half. Add Central Alliance and you get 39 because there are two of those. <clears throat> and I know there'll be two of those because they are long-term senators. So it could well be... Um, it could well be that the Labor government, if there is one, might have a very easy time in the Senate. But the fact, if you agree with my analysis, you would come to the conclusion, if Labor plus Greens plus Jackie Lambie is 37, which is one less than half, then everything depends upon the Central Alliance. Or perhaps Darren Hinch, assuming Darren Hinch is elected, which we can't assume because we can't assume anything much. So I just don't know, other than to say, I don't think the Labor government will have an easy time in the Senate. I think you, you could very well get this situation. Compare the Gillard government with the Shorten government. <clears throat> the Gillard government had a very poor win in the House representative election, very poor win indeed, but there was a Labor-Green Senate majority. Now we get to find ourselves in the opposite position. Shorten has a good win in the House of Representatives, but Labor Greens, and adding in Lambie as well, are still one short of half the seats. So I, I just don't know how easily Labor will have, a, have it in the Senate. If they don't get a very convincing win in the House of Representatives, I think you'll find that the combination of coalition one Nation, Central Alliance, and perhaps Hinch, will block a lot of these taxation measures that the Labor Party claims to have a, have yeah. a mandate for. I think that's what a lot of investors are hoping for, um, Malcolm, and I think that's certainly the response, at least what we know from the Central Alliance and One Nation and question mark about Hinch. So I think yeah. a lot of the so-called tax changes may never see the light, or if they do see the light, it's going to be in a substantially different form. Yeah. Malcolm. Well, that's what I think will actually happen, and I think I think you'll find that the Labor Party will increasingly start describing the Senate as unrepresentative will again, you know? <laughs> no, so they the, will. We'll be on the um, same page. They haven't <laughs> been doing so up to now because they've been enjoying the situation that that's right. they've yeah, been so in. Swill can be enjoyable depending on where you're drinking it from. All right, mate, thanks for joining us on the program. Thanks very much. That was Malcolm McCarris. I call him the doyen of electoral analysts in Australia, and he's been doing it for a long time, and he's remarkably accurate. But, I, Paul, I haven't seen him, so He was a little guessing. sitting on the fence today. Yeah. Uh, we'll have to get more out of him, and I'm sure we'll get some articles. Uh, as he gets closer to the date, I'm sure he might be able to firm it up a little bit. But yeah. I think one in three, a lot of people would be surprised, probably rate that it's quite high. <laughs> exactly. A lot of people think they haven't got a chance at all, but one in three is better than zero in three. Okay, so... Uh, you could say, of course, 2019 so far has been politically challenging. And you must be wondering how this political roller coaster will affect your financial future. Well, our Switzer Investor Strategy Day is back in Sydney, Melbourne and Brisbane to cover all these topics and more. We'll have some of the best fund managers in the country there to uh, give you lectures on what they think is going to happen and also to answer your questions. The tickets are only $39 and they're on sale right now. For more details, head to www.switzerevents.com. So joining us on the Switzer program is David Kirk, former great Kiwi halfback, 
former great Fairfax Media CEO, but nowadays um, a part of Bailador Technology Investments. Is that right, David? That's right, Peter, co-founder of Bailador Technology Investments. Okay. To be great, I suppose you could say. <laughs> which, <laughs> which is a, on the way to a listed ASX company, we should point out, under yeah. stock code BL... BTI. BTI, yeah. Yep. And, and so what's... Like, clearly I want to talk to you about Israel Flower, but I'll keep that as a tease <laughs> at the end of it because a lot of the people listening here are, are rugby fans and they're curious what someone like you would have to say about it, particularly as you've run big organisations like Fairfax Media in controversial times as well. Um, but tell us, um, David, what is Bailador Technology Investments all about? Okay. Bailador Technology Investments, BTI, offers investors the opportunity to invest in a portfolio of private expansion stage, that's growth trades, later stage, information technology companies mm. uh, through one listed share. Mm. So my partner and I, Paul, and the rest of our investment team have, in the four years that the company's been listed, have set about building a portfolio of private information technology companies. And now pretty big, we've got 10 companies in the portfolio. At the end of last calendar year, uh, the revenue of those 10 companies was 209 million. That's an average of just about 21 million per company. Uh, they, the revenue grew in that year at 30%. 82% of the revenue was recurring because they're very focused on software as a service businesses that have this recurring subscription revenue base. So why don't we just talk about some of those 10 companies, maybe just for our listeners' point of view, just name two or three and what they yep. do and so we can understand a bit more what's, what the portfolio looks like. Yep, sure. The, well, the, the first and uh, the big one uh, 40% of our portfolio is a business called SiteMinder. We invested in the business seven years ago, uh, and it has grown. Its revenue has grown 20 times during that period. Uh, it is now a big uh, global company. Sankana Ryan, who you might remember as the COO and CFO of Zero, mm -hmm. uh, he joined Zero uh, when the share price was about $15. Left when it was in the 40s. So. Took it from two billion. David, please don't bring that story up. I emceed Zero Conference when it was $14.80. Talked about <laughs> it on my TV show. Got the $42 within three or four weeks, and I did not have a zack on it. Come on, come on. There you go. So Sankar was a big big part of that. He was the COO and the CFO yeah. there, and he just uh, three months ago has joined SiteMinder. So what does SiteMinder do? SiteMinder um, provides uh, distribution software for hotel companies which to its core product is what is called a channel manager, uh, and they, the software is sold to hotel companies, integrates with the hotel company's systems, you know, that property management system, when you go to the front desk at a hotel, someone books you in and they manage your stay through that system, integrates to that system, and all of the hotel's room inventory, all of their room availability, going out over you know, many weeks, uh, is then uploaded into software, into SiteMinder's software, which is already connected to hundreds of channels to potential bookings like for hotels. Like Trivago. Trivago, TripAdvisor, like, yeah, Expedia, C-Trip. Yeah, so um, they're all connected. They go to, they're all connected to SiteMinder. And that saves the hotel um, money because previously you needed to have someone who was constantly moving inventory around mm -hmm. on okay. different channels. Uh, this is connected in real time as soon as it goes into the, the warehouse. But more importantly, it drives revenue for the hotel because... Uh, if, the, if the hotel can get one more booking, so it's you know, $200 a, a night for the hotel, if they can get one more booking in a month, uh, then they'll pay for the software as a service cost of having SiteMinder as their 
channel manager, mm. distribution partner. Mm. So that's site mind, you said that's 40% of your portfolio. What are the next uh, two, and briefly, what do they do? Uh, well, the next biggest actually is a business called Instacluster, which is a um, Canberra founder business, came out of the University of Canberra. Uh, and it's quite a technical business. It provides services and software to help companies that deal with m huge amounts of data deal more effectively with that data. Mm -hmm. And they do that by providing, um, simplifying and making it easy for them to use a new class of database mm -hmm. called a NoSQL database, uh, which is the latest uh, and most sort of modern type of database. Um, and they, um, it's, an, it's, a, it's an open source database, which means that uh, there's, there's no, no one selling you the database. You have to um, take advantage of the da database by um, using an open source product. So you need a, an intermediary between you and the open source product to help you manage it properly. And, and are all the 10 companies, is it all software as a service type? Not all, just, just one more thing. So yeah. I'll answer the question. One more thing on software. Instacluster is growing at 70 or 80%. Right. And now the second largest... Who are uh, the big users of the, of the product? Uh, people who have um, absolutely uh, masses masses of data. So uh, Atlassian mm -hmm. is a big user of it. I was going to say, it sounds about, about as confusing as Atlassian when you describe yeah, it. Yeah, it is, it is confusing. It's our most technical business. Mm -hmm. Banks are big, are big users of it. Yeah. Um, uh, the, the, the networked cycle businesses, you know, yeah. the Peloton and those sorts of businesses. Fortnite, the game, the makers of that game right. are big users of it. People have just masses of data to deal with. And, and do you get involved, are you actively involved in the, helping the management or are you just hands-off investors? I mean, no. so some of some people in your field are get very involved with the companies they invest in. What, what's your sort of position here? Yeah, we're on the involvement end of that. Mm -hmm. We go onto the boards uh, of the companies, uh, and, invariably, unless we've got just a small um, shareholding in a large company. Uh, but we go onto the boards of the companies and we work very closely with the management. Mm. Okay. So and, and why a listed vehicle structure? Why not just do as a, as a private fund or a trust or some other, which is typically a lot of how private, people might yeah. think of private equity, I guess. Because there's access to, to private equity. Yeah. Is well, it is. It is. Or, or in the US sense, it would be called growth stage mm -hmm. um, information technology mm -hmm. investing. Yep. Um, well, the reason we, we took the fund private is we think there is a real demand for investing in... So you took the fund public? You sorry, mean. public, I yeah. should say. Took the fund public. And we think there's a real demand for investing in uh, these sorts of uh, information technology companies. You know, technology is... It's been the best performing sector across mm. the board for the last five or six years. And you can't get access to it uh, through publicly listed stocks unless you feel mm. confident to go around and pick a lot of stocks. And they're pretty highly valued, those big software-as-a-service companies now listed on the ASX. So this is an opportunity for investors to get access to growth stage um, companies before they become extremely highly valued when and they get listed. And how has Bale do it, done itself? Uh, we, we have done pretty well. Um, we're trading at uh, $1.16. Sorry, the NAV of companies $1.16. But we're trading at a pretty big discount. Um, and we think that's mostly a consequence of our relative immaturity. We need to get to the stage yeah. where we are exiting, consistently ex exiting companies, yeah. having realisations, so investors can see that cash is coming back into the fund from selling higher than we're holding the companies, mm -hmm. and then people will be confident that the model fully yeah. works. And how do you raise, um, I mean, to invest in another company, I mean, you're presumably some, you're like a listed investment company. Yep. So do you issue more shares, you have shares subscription? I mean, how do, when you find the next investment you want to get into, how, do, how does Balador find its... 
find the funds to invest in that company? Well, how we've got to the current stage, which is a uh, NAV of 140 million, is we listed in, um, an initial portfolio of companies, mm -hmm. including SiteMinder, uh, and then we uh, raised a bit of capital at the time of listing, then we exercised some options, and then we had a subsequent capital raising. That was to get us to a scale of more than sort of 100 million, and we're well past that now at 140 million. And so from here on in, mostly it will be about realisations, bringing cash back into the fund. We'll make some dis distributions, mm -hmm. but if we've got you know, some very good investments in front of us where we can see an opportunity to deploy the capital um, really effectively, then we'll go ahead and continue to make investments. Have you toyed with the idea of listing SiteMinder separately? Yeah, well, mostly we will exit our mm -hmm. portfolio companies by listing mm -hmm. or a trade sale, mm -hmm. and that'll it'll probably end up being about 50-50. We've actually made a, uh, one exit already from the fund. Last November, we listed a business called Straker Translations, mm -hmm. which is a language translation platform yep. um, and a high quality business. It's reporting pretty soon. Mm -hmm. it's, a New it's on a New Zealand financial year, so the year ended on 31st of March. Mm -hmm. So early in May, their results will come out and they've obviously got a prospectus out in the market, so they'd be expecting to hit those targets. Mm -hmm. And David, this is... Um Obviously, you're very involved with this, but you're part of a small team, I guess, uh, working very closely with those companies. So who are the other parts of, uh, of, of Balador? Yeah, sure. Paul Wilson is my co-founder. Paul and I founded the business um, about seven years ago altogether now. We are three years in a private company, now four years public. Paul's got a, a long and successful background in private equity investing. He was an early employee of Champ, of Champ mm -hmm. One, Champ's very first fund, and he worked... Uh, very successfully with Champ and a number of businesses, including um, their their, um, their sort of home run investment in Oldstar. I mean, he, he was a, an important component of that. Uh, he then also worked with Lachlan Murdoch at Illyria, his private investment vehicle, including uh, putting together the investment in, in Nova Entertainment, which has been a very successful yeah. investment. Mm. So Paul, Paul's great, and then we've got. Um, four other uh, members of the investment mm -hmm. team below him. Yeah. Okay, so let's get to other matters. Um, you, you were the CEO of Fairfax Media when it was going through a lot of transition. Would you put your money into free-to-air TV nowadays, David? <laughs> well, I don't... I don't Come on, you must have been... I'm not going to give, say yes or no because I, don't, I just don't make a point of assessing and analysing and looking hard at... Uh, other media companies these days, yeah. but there's no doubt that. Is that um, because you watch Netflix every night? <laughs> there's no doubt. There's no doubt that uh, newspapers and free-to-air TV and even TV and even traditional pay TV are, mm. are challenged by the over-the-top offerings. Netflix yeah. is a good example, but of course they're all cannibalising themselves now because they need to because it's a it's just a better model mm. not to rely on linear programming. Paul, you got any other embarrassing question before we get to well, Israel Folau? I'm sure you're going to move on to Israel Folau <laughs> uh, and a couple of rugby questions. Yeah. But look, just just come back to Fairfax. I mean, you, you say you didn't want to talk about the industry, but when you sort of from a distance, you look at the, the Channel 9 merger, I mean, does that, from your perspective, having been an insider at Fairfax, do you think that makes sense? made sense for both Fairfax and, and Channel 9 shareholders? Well, I think it makes sense on some levels and, and it's tougher to see the benefits on other levels. Mm -hmm. But the, the level at which it makes sense is, is consolidation does drive reduction of overhead cost. Mm -hmm. And media companies you know, are in a highly competitive environment these days. So if you can have um, you know, less overhead for the revenue that you're deriving from that overhead, 
that's got to be a good thing, so that'll drop to the bottom line. Um, it's pretty uncertain to me where the scale, those economies of scale will drive benefits on the revenue side, whether they'll be able to get higher prices, uh, mostly through delivering uh, you know, bundled buys. You can give you some TV, we can give you some online, we can give you yeah. some newspapers. Mm. It should work in principle. It's sort of in principle it should work, but it's, it's hard to point to examples of it actually yeah. working. Mm. And I think that's mostly because uh, both advertising agencies who are buying on behalf of uh, uh, clients uh, and the clients themselves have particular focuses when they come to an advertising campaign. Mm. And it's not all that often that they want a total mm. cross-media mm. buy. Mm. Um, but, you know, it remains to be seen, you just, the Australian media market is getting pretty concentrated. Yeah. Mm. Really, if you think about um, News Limited and, uh, and, and Nine, you've got, you know, the two big guys and the rest are all relatively small. Yeah. And what about culture? Do you think the groups are aligned from a... It seems to me that they've, for at least outsiders, have said they're very different organisations. Is that... Yeah. Uh, well, newspaper, newspaper cultures and television cultures are not particularly aligned um, out of the box, which doesn't mean to say, you know, good leadership can't build alignment mm. but you know, newspapers are, are about news and are about um, information gathering and putting together stories and opinion pieces and uh, you know much more about uh, reflective or um, you know what, what the journalist would say is you know doing an important job as the fourth mm. estate mm. television particularly free to air television more than anything has become a a um, you know, basically a yeah, cheap, en cheap en entertainment business, reality TV and sport. Mm. Actually, the sport's not cheap, but the reality, <laughs> the reality <laughs> TV is. So th those two cultures, mm. to begin with, are, are not aligned. But mm. as, as I say, it's not to say good management can't find alignment. Uh, one last question on, on media uh, before we talk to Israel, if allow. It, I, I figure when you were there, when you were heading up Fairfax, you, you owned... To UAE at the same time, the radio station. To yeah, UAE. they came in. We made that purchase. Yeah. Yep. And it seemed to me that all of your journalists were more aligned with the ABC than to UAE. And it seemed to me that yes, you had great quality journalists at Fairfax then. If all of them were spending less time on the ABC and more on to UAE, you may well have threatened two GB. Was that something that, that was culturally too difficult for you to say to your journalistic team? Give ABC away and support. Our in-house company. Yeah, you can't you can't spend a lot of time uh, you can't spend any time telling journalists what to do and expect <laughs> to be successful. As you guys would know. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know they they, they, they their job is to report the news or to write um, thoughtful commentary yeah. uh, on what's going on around them, uh, and they'll do that from their own perspective and they'll and inevitably they'll do it from a worldview perspective, which mm. includes a political perspective. Mm. And you just got to be realistic as a manager of businesses like that, and you need to try and. You need to be um, uncompromising on quality, yeah. um, but you can't actually tell them what to write about or what's, what, what line to take in the story or even mm. what story to write. Well, being a, a sensible person as you are, David, there must have been times when you looked at the headlines from journalists who were actually even undermining the calibre of the business that was actually employing them at the time, like particularly when you, you know, predict you know, collapses in house prices and your most important section is the real estate section. That is not good for a CEO who's running an organisation that depends on real estate revenue. Yeah, th that is right in the short term, but if you think about the value of the masthead and the value of what the newspaper or the online outlet stands for, you know, particularly in this day of fake news and no one believing anything, mm. if you can establish a a track record of telling the truth and a track record of saying it the way you see it mm. and the way you believe it 
to be true, then that has real value, that has huge value. And, and that, all of that is wrapped up in the brand. Okay. And the brand and in the masthead. And, and it was never you know, senior, senior management's um, role or prerogative to try and undo that by trying to drive short-term revenue. Okay, one last question. Israel Falau, has there been an, an issue in rugby like this where there is, there is actually some uh, a hymn book that people can follow <laughs> to explain what should be done with a situation like this? No, this is, this is unique, I think, this situation. Mm. Uh, mostly because it involves two really important um, principles and values at loggerheads clashing, the, you know, the value and the principle of free speech mm. and the value and, and, and principle of, of not publicly denigrating people who are different from you in a way that is natural to them mm. and part of their identity. Um, and those two things completely clash in this, uh, and it's a tragedy for everyone. It's a tragedy mm. for, for my money, for Israel, it's definitely a tragedy for Australian rugby, mm. and it's a tragedy for lots of little kids who would, who would love to see Israel Folau in Australia, mm. playing for the Waratahs, playing for the Wallabies, mm. being the wonderful sportsman that he is. Paul, got any questions? I think you summarised the Israel Folau situation uh, very aptly, so yeah. um, that was... Uh, yeah, you, you summed up as though you'd be a politician one of these days. <laughs> Very <Really>? lucky. <laughs> David Kirk, thanks for joining us on Thank the program. You. That was David Kirk, former great Kiwi All Black halfback, former CEO of Fairfax Media and chairman of Ballador Technology Investments. Thanks for joining us on the Switzer program. Talk to you next week. Britain time! Britain time! <laughs>